Hi, y'all. Welcome back. We're going to continue with this powerful conversation with Leon Ford because his story, like so many we share on the show, is the reality that so many Black and Latinx people face. If you haven't listened to part one, check it out now. It's a must listen. But what makes Leon's story so different and so powerful is that he has chosen a path of redemption, one where he makes peace with his reality and even uses his aggressors to help and look onward, not just for his own well-being, but for the healing of his entire community. In part one, we learned about Leon's family, how they prepped him for a moment just like this one, and he's not alone in this conversation. I know many people that have had these talks. I've had them too. But unlike most people that end up as another statistic of police brutality, Leon survived after he was shot five times after a botched traffic stop. Now confined to a wheelchair, I was curious, how did he gather the strength, the courage to face the people that hurt him, to move in a path of forgiveness and helping others? I come from a very loving family. Growing up, an abundance, an abundance of love, an abundance of resources. I mean, any dream that I had, I was supported. Any idea that I had, I was supported. Even if I only played my piano for two weeks, right? When I wanted to sell sneakers, my parents supported that. So it was like growing up in love, that's the core of who I am. And so despite going through this adversity, I was able to hold on to that love. I was able to hold on to that creativity. I was able to hold on to that inner child that is adventurous, that doesn't give up, that loves joy. And um, through holding on to that inner child, yes, I was... I was challenged. I remember reading comments on the news sites about me and my family. I mean, some of the most racist comments you can think of. And I never made my shooting racial. I didn't have that language. It was the media that gave me that language. I, when I looked at the first article, it said, Black teen shot by a white officer. Then I read the comments with all these white folks calling me monkeys and niggers and this and that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and then I made it racial. For a good period of time, I felt like I hated all white people. Yeah. And then, you know, I had amazing nurses and doctors. So I said, I hate all white people but them, mm. right? I hate all white people but my sixth grade teacher who really loved on me, but my German grandma and mm-hmm. my other grandma And so I realized how complicated things were. Mm -hmm. And I decided it was a choice. Like, what am I going to feed? Am I going to feed this hatred, this anger, this resentment, this confusion? Or am I going to lean into compassion, love, understanding, thoughtfulness, innovation, creativity, courage, curiosity and that's what I decided to do growing up my dad always said oh it's chess not checkers (laughs) right and if the goal in life is to be happy to live a purposeful life if that's what I believe 
to be winning, well, why would I choose to play checkers and to just take somebody's pieces for the sake of just taking them and not fully understanding the board? And if I understand the board and I want a good quality of life, it makes sense to lead with love. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, Edmund Dantas is wronged and he gets sent to prison for years and he breaks out of prison and he finds his gold and he goes back and he gets revenge on everyone who set him up. And then after he gets all the revenge, he said he doesn't feel any different. You know, there's a quote in the movie that says, God will give me justice. I know people in my neighborhood who lost everything because they had a huge tragic moment, tragic loss in their lives. And they decided to retaliate. And they wish they could be out here with me right now, spending time with their children, hugging their mom, hugging their father. And so I think that another thing is back to chess, me understanding the impact of my decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I do this thing, what will happen to me? What will happen to my family? What happens if I go out and try to murder a police officer? Even if I succeed, what happens to me? Yeah. And if that happens to me, what happens to my son? What happens to my mother? For every action, there's a reaction. We know that, you know, I feel like I had the time to think through all of these different possible outcomes and the most realistic outcome for me and the way I saw my life was choosing to heal, Mm -hmm. choosing to love, and choosing to find innovative solutions that could prevent other people from going through what I experienced. And healing is exactly what Leon has done. We know from academia that when Black men are told they have viable, safe futures, they thrive. He's taken this concept and completely run with his idea of self-love, that we can heal others by first healing ourselves. Some of Leon's work includes a book titled Untold, Testimony and Guide to Overcoming Adversity. He's also published the Leon Self-Care Handbook, which aims to support community well-being for those suffering from trauma. He's also the co-founder of the HEAR Foundation, which combines police and community members together to create safe communities for everyone. Leon has also been the subject of an award-winning documentary that he executive produced. It's been an amazing process, especially going through it myself in many different ways, right? So there was a season where writing was therapeutic for me or reading. There was a season where traveling was therapeutic, but then there was a season where I was very intentional about going through therapy. To go back, growing up, and I know we we spoke about our relationships with our fathers and the many different lessons that we learned, having Black fathers who are preparing us for the world. Well, I never expected the world to be nice to me. I never expected the world to be equitable. I never expected the world to be just. I expected the world to be rough. I expected the world to be adverse. 
I expected the world to be unjust because of how I was raised, because of the experiences, you know, my parents and grandparents had. And so it's interesting, even now being a person who's a wheelchair user, I go places where people would inquire about, yo, how do you navigate the world? And it's so messed up that this building doesn't have steps and these curbs. And how does that make you feel? And I'm like, makes me feel how I always felt. <laughs> like, <laughs> the world is my oyster, but it's not for me. <laughs> so I just got to do the best I can to make it work, to make it fit. I'm very hopeful. I'm very faithful. But I'm also a realist. I see things for what they are. But that's what helps me to be innovative and find solutions, mm-hmm. right? Because if I'm like in a dream world where I'm like, well, there's no issues. It's like, how am I going to be innovative? I'm like, oh, this is a real issue. Yeah. Okay, what leverage do I have? What people do I know? What skills do we all have collectively? And then how do we work together to solve this problem? What made you want to get in the trenches with people who you literally, especially in the moment you woke up and realized you were alive, you still believe we're going to kill you? Yeah, it's curiosity, creativity, courage, and innovation. I'm a problem solver. So who would know even more about problems within police than police officers. Activists usually talk to activists. Lawyers talk to lawyers. Politicians talk to politicians. Educators talk to educators, so on and so forth. I saw the value in me not only talking to, but building relationships with every aspect of my community. I know the teachers. I know the philanthropists. I know the uh, people who own the Chinese store, right? I know the Arabs. Like, I've built real relationships to understand my community. I think there's about almost 18,000 police departments in America, and they are all governed differently. And so I saw a huge opportunity to leverage my platform, leverage my story to not only build relationships with the police officers in Pittsburgh, but also help change the way that they see community and help community see them differently through relationships. This is a lot of work. This is not a PR move, right? Mm -hmm. These are several hundred hours of meetings from lunch to happy hours and dinners and like meeting with officers who are in uniforms and who aren't in uniform or going into the schools with officers and I have real relationships with these officers and I get to learn some things about their job that I wouldn't have learned and I didn't learn when I had a more adverse relationship with them it's really heavy work It's very time-consuming, but I was committed to the solution. And I was more committed to the solution than I was to my anger and frustration. And I wanted to learn, like, what do y'all think? Why do y'all do this thing? Why don't you want to live here in this community? And I get a bunch of different answers. 
And through his constant conversations, I think Leon gets at the heart of a simple but complicated question. Why can't we simply see each other as humans? It's easy for me to be like, yo, F y'all. Y'all are all bad. And for them to say, well, F you, that shooting was just. Mm -hmm. But what happens when they meet me, the person, and not the story? Mm -hmm. And they have to say, wow, he is a human being. He is a good person. Things shift. And so I think a lot of times, even with police, I know, you know, even Black police officers who struggle, people think that they don't feel pain Mm -hmm. of, like, what is happening to Black and brown people in this country. And, like, if they could, they would be out there protesting. I mean, it's very complex. It's super complex. I think, you know, the more we can have meaningful dialogue and this doesn't happen on social media. No. I'm not talking about people commenting and just saying some far out there things. I'm talking about really breaking bread, sitting down, being curious, trying to understand someone else's perspective. Because we, we all have different lived experiences that shape our perspective. We're, we're all culturally conditioned to see the world a very particular way based on where we grew up and how we grew up. And I think it's important for us to understand that cultural conditioning so that we can find innovative ways to reprogram ourselves, not to be judgmental, to be unified. And through that unification, through that humanity, through that love, through the curiosity, creativity, courage, and innovation, we could really solve a lot of our societal issues. But as profound and impactful as Leon's work is, he still was faced with the complexity of his emotions, what makes him human, the very thing that made him react during the traffic stop. And when he heard that the police officer that had shot him was still working in the department, his human instinct kicked in. He wanted to sit down and talk. He's still working as a Pittsburgh police officer. And, you know, a few years ago, I just had this vision to meet with him. That moment was liberating for me because I've done a lot of self-work and inner work, but you never know if you've really done the work until you're put in a position to where something could trigger you. My philosophy is, like, acknowledge the harm, work through the triggers, and move forward. Yeah. When people talk about forgiveness, I don't have the traditional idea of forgiveness, like turn the other cheek. My forgiveness is more connected to quality of life. And I always say, can you imagine the quality of my life if every time I saw a police car, I was triggered? Or if every time I thought about the officer that shot me, I was triggered? I've been in situations where I was around family and we were having a great time and I had one moment where I thought about police and I completely shut down and couldn't enjoy that time with my family. And so I didn't want these officers to continue to take that away from me. And that was one of the things that encouraged me to actually go to therapy and work through this trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I finally had the platform 
to sit down with the officer who shot me. And I didn't have any expectations. I didn't need an apology or anything like that. I just felt called to meet with him. And uh, we sat and we talked. And uh, the way I describe it is it felt like something out of a Bible story. That may be the most powerful moment of my life Mm. where if you can imagine the night I was shot, I felt completely powerless. I felt powerless in court when we went to trial. But to sit across from him and not be triggered, it was like indescribable. For any listeners out there, if you've ever experienced harm, someone who, who have harmed you and the thought of them can trigger you, looking into their face, seeing a picture can trigger you to actually sit in front of that person and there's no trigger. Mm. You completely take your power back. Yeah. All of the dreams, they're gone. It's like sitting in front of what you thought was the boogeyman and saying, wow, this thing isn't as scary as I thought it was. Yeah. I mean, this is an incredible moment. You have met this man that you did not know at all until this day when you were 19, who shot you, got in your car, violated you, changed the complete trajectory of your life. You're now sitting in front of and releasing him from your mind, releasing him from, you know, that that weight he carried on you. And you must have felt one really free, but I really want to know Like, how do you think he felt in this moment? Because he had to have been thinking about this a lot, too. Yeah, I think he was confused. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was wondering, like, what is your motive for this? I also think it was liberating, you know, again, for him to see me as a human being, to hear my mission, and to feel my humanity. Mm. I mean, this guy was, he was looking at me like I was like an angel or something. Mm. You know, uh, he didn't say a bunch of words. I mean, I don't think he had the words. Because you got to figure, I've been going to therapy for years now. So uh, in therapy, it's helped to provide me with the words to express myself. Whereas, like, I believe that he was in the beginning of his healing journey. So, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I guess the last question I have for you today is, you know, having this interaction and now doing the work that you do, how are you feeling about the future of the relationships between, you know, Black people and the police, especially as we enter the midterms and more election cycles where this will always become a big topic? But, you know, you were one of the few people I've ever met in my life who can say, I'm the one that has survived a shooting. I can tell you what I think police should do from a very personal level. So how are you feeling about the future we're looking at now. Um, and this is going to go more into what I do have in common with my father and grandfather. I feel like Black people, it's important for us to acknowledge the harm, right? It's important for us to work through those triggers and it's important for us to move forward with unity and strength. We have to let go of the collective victim mentality. We could talk about systemic oppression the history and it's important to do those things but it's equally important for us to be prepared for what we know we are experiencing and so that means like yo we can't 
opt out of elections, right? Locally or nationally. We have to be involved. We have to work together. We have to pull our resources together. We have to be innovative. We have to respect one another. There's some people within our community who absolutely would not and do not want to understand police officers. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. We need those people too, right? We need those people who are going to protest. We are a community. And as a community, we have to understand the many different barriers that we are all faced with and find a way to collaborate despite our differences. And if we can collaborate despite our differences, I believe that people would treat us different, generally. I recognize my privilege, even as a wheelchair user. As we're building communities, we can leverage privilege. And so that's what I try to do. I live in a bubble because of the many different relationships that I have. And I know that people in my neighborhood, they don't live in that bubble if I'm not intentional about sharing the bubble. Yeah. Right? So we have to share. Sharing privilege is very important. And it's not a social media thing. The world is complicated. You have poor people, wealthy people. You have people in the middle. You have people with different religious views, different sexualities, all these different views. But then there's relationships and relationships are complicated. You can have a very strong view, but meet somebody who completely shifts your perspective about a group of people. It's very complicated. And if we let go of the victim mentality and get into problem-solving mode, and some people would say we shouldn't have to do that. I have friends who are like, it's not my job to teach white people about what I experienced. But then it's like, okay, well, who's going to teach them? Yeah, yeah. I think it's very important for individuals who are in the deep, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who who are doing some really important work that is heavy mm. to experience life and to find joy that can accompany the work. The work that I do is very heavy. Um, and I think in order for me to continue doing this work in the way that I do, I have to enjoy my life. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like a lot of activists get caught up in the work, Mm -hmm. right? And it's easy because it's purposeful, but joy is important because that is what, you know, gives me the strength to continue. I think part of what makes Leon's work so different is his approach. He's not afraid to go straight to the source, acting almost as a translator, looking for the right points of intersection and humanity to better coexist. And it's through his body of work, his content, his willingness to put himself out there with the same institutions that hurt him and so many others in his community, that he's been able to help so many others avoid his same fate. And while Leon's approach to working with the people that harmed him may differ from so many activists across the country who are calling to defund the police and take police down in totality, I find his work and his point of view so interesting and valid within an orchestra of ways in which we are all trying to make sure that everyone feels safe in America. 
Thanks, bro. Thanks for sharing your platform. And I'm sure we'll have many more conversations. I hope so. Leon could be so angry today about what happened. But instead of being angry, he set himself on a path that his goal is to make amends and heal, which is so powerful and so commendable. And it's that level of self-love and optimism that ultimately has given him the tools to shine a light and help others move forward on their own journeys. We are so excited for you to be here for season two of In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Keep coming back every other week and take in these powerful stories of Black and Latinx people as they take us on their own healing journeys. In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us is executive produced by myself, Zach Stafford, and Yvonne Sheehan, and mastered by James Foster. And our writer is Yvette Lopez. A shout out to our guest, Leon Ford. 